Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dave Leniger, and today we're talking about turning a vision into a thriving franchise from the ground up. Starting a business is one thing, but transforming it into a franchise, that's a whole new adventure. Join me in this episode as we explore the journey of building a franchise from its very foundation. Let's get into it. You know, when you're first starting a business, the idea comes to you over a period of time and you start thinking, boy, maybe I'd like to start a restaurant. Maybe I'd like to be in the landscape business. Maybe I want to sell something. So the legal entity that you have has to be driven by uh, an attorney's advice. Most attorneys will charge you far more than what the advice is worth. You start by going to Google, talk about types of business, and you can have a private sole proprietorship that you don't even incorporate or anything. You can have an incorporated business. It could be a subchapter S, uh, which means it's limited in number of shareholders. You're taxed as if you're a partnership, and it limits some of your future expansion. But you can always convert that to a C chapter, which is a corporation that is a regular taxable corporation, and there's LLCs. That's a long, complex conversation to have. I think the better question to answer is, I'm thinking about starting a business. Which business should I start? Ask your friends, ask your neighbors. Who's a great attorney you know for starting a business? Not who's a divorce attorney, not who does your estate attorney, but who's a good, you know, midline attorney that could say, uh, I could help you form a business of some kind. When you start talking about the, the best entity, you still got to go back to an attorney. Are you going to franchise a concept or are you going to license your concept? Vast differences, vast economic costs. Licensing is far less expensive. And so I think for most people, my recommendation for most people would be buy a good, successful, established franchise business. So when you start talking about what are the pros and cons of various business types, allow me to give you some examples of three or four businesses I'm in. The one that I am most famous for, of course, is Remax. We are a franchisor in the real estate sector in the franchising community. In other words, we look for people who would like to imitate the successful operation of real estate offices that we have created. So franchising is an outstanding way to grow your business. There are other sectors. There's the fast food sector, which is McDonald's. There's the fast casual food, which is Panera, Quiznos, Daddy's Chicken Shack. There's all these nuances and differences. My horse business is a subchapter S, and I've had it for 35 years. There are tax benefits to that because some years there are losses and some years there's income. And so your attorney has to tell you that. And there's franchising and there's distributorships. For instance, my Harley Davidson motorcycle shops are realistically distributorships, similar in very ways to franchising, but distributorships is they're really licensing you to sell their product. They make their money from you, not from a royalty or a monthly fee. They make their money by selling you their products wholesale. And that way you're the distribution chain 
They don't have to open offices or outlets. Uh, they literally, they manufacture and they help the distributorships market and sell the product. And so all these things are, you know, they're pretty basic, but they're distinctly different. And once you've figured out the business or the sector that you want to get into, then it's much easier to say, I'll go to an attorney and say, this is my business idea. What would you recommend? You can license, franchise, sole ownership, C-Corp, S-Corp, LLC, any business that you want. And so let's say you want to manufacture shoes. Well, then you have to explain, do I want to distribute the shoes? Because if you just want to manufacture them and send them to other people that will distribute them, whether it's Amazon or whether it's a network of people who specialize in selling your brand of shoe, that's the decisions you have to make. Service-based companies have the same advantages of the product. In service-based, there's almost never a distributorship. Uh, it'll either be franchising or it will be licensing. And it depends on the degree of participation of the parent company that's going to participate in the outlets. For instance, Harley does not tell you the store hours you're going to be open. They do not tell you who to hire, how to supervise them. Uh, they don't tell you other items except for the only new motorcycles you can sell are Harleys or somebody Harley supports. If you take in trade-ins, uh, you can certainly sell a competitor's bike, but it's not in your floor plan. And so when we're talking about businesses, you really have to drill down to tell me the business, tell me the product, tell me the service, and I could give you the advice of what you should do with it. When Gail and I created Remax, we started it as a corporation. Three years later, we decided we would franchise outlets. And when we decided to franchise, we formed a second corporation. The first corporation was still, we owned and operated eight offices as a corporation. The franchise unit started selling franchises, regions and single offices. Eventually, you know, 50 year evolution of the company, we ended up selling all of our units off and we are simply a 100% franchise organization. We decided to franchise because it was an eye-opening experience to open eight real estate offices in a year. The cost of opening the offices back then, oh, I don't remember, thirty or $40,000. It was smaller offices, 1,200 square feet, uh, room enough for 12, 14 agents. And you had to have desks, filing cabinets, typewriters, place for the secretary, an officer's office, manager's office, a conference room. And so uh, that was expensive. Fast forward 50 years, if you want to open a three or four person small real estate company, it can still be done fairly inexpensively. But if you're going to grow and have a 50 or 100 person firm, you're going to spend tens of thousands, leases, office space, furniture, etc. And what happens is most entrepreneurs do not have unlimited access to capital to just do it all on their own. Franchising is really a financing device for a concept to expand rapidly and inexp inexpensively because you provide the business in the box, the franchise. 
here's the products, here's the service, these are the systems, the training, this is the technology, this is the advertising, this is everything you need to do to open your office and start doing whatever you want to do. The franchise purchaser has to pay the capital expenditures. The franchise purchaser has to lease the space, which is capital intensive, has to buy the equipment, and if it's equipment of a restaurant, it's fryers and refrigerators and it's cash registers and it's uh, technology and it's uh, iPads to check in and all that. If it's a service-oriented business, like a real estate business, uh, it's computer programs, software programs, and so it varies very differently. But it's very hard for a person to say, this is a great franchise idea and find a way to capitalize it to make 1,000, 2,000, or 10,000 units. And so in essence, you come up with the system, the business in the box, the entrepreneur buys the business in the box, less expensive than inventing everything over, but then they have to capitalize the business itself. And if they get a successful unit, then they have to capitalize the second, third, fourth, fifth, and 10th unit. In other words, a sole proprietor with a small corporation could take hundreds of years to grow to 1,000 or 2,000 units. When you're talking franchising, it used to be two types of franchising. Franchising single units or franchising a much larger area to a master franchisor. That was very popular 50 years ago. Uh, it is very unpopular today. That's been improved upon. When you had a master franchisor 50 years ago, you might say, here's the Remax concept. I'm going to take it to California. You find one investor group who has enough money that they could actually expand Remax throughout the state of California. They'll have to capitalize it. They'll have a, a group of franchise salespeople. They'll have to get a prototype open. And they'll have to market, spend the money, very expensive. And then you would split their fees in some fashion. In essence, the master franchisor had to also be a franchisor. So if you had a customer in California, you had to give them the federal franchise document, and then you had to give them the California master franchise document. Both had to have annual audited reports. It's very bureaucratic and very expensive. And so that developed over maybe three decades to where we stopped doing master franchises in the United States and we still do them internationally because the concept works internationally. And nationally, we've gone to what's called regional developer. The regional developer sort of like the master franchise or for a specific territory, but they are selling off the basis of the parent company's franchise documents. They are an approved vendor selling our franchises. They do part of the work. They do the quality control, the uh, secret shopper, the uh, inspections. Uh, they help with the, the regional operations of local advertising, regional digital, etc. And we split the commissions or the royalties, if you will. It's a much better way because they're not having to file their own franchise documents. And it has become very popular. Many people come up with ideas. Anything sounds simple on paper, and when you get into the weeds and you start figuring out the details, that's when it becomes complex. So if I ever find somebody that says, 
I've got this idea. I want a franchise. I'm going to run and run away fast because unfortunately I have 60 years experience and they're stupid. And that's a nasty thing to say, but it's, you don't know what you don't know. And if all you've seen is, boy, McDonald's, what a success. Pizza Hut, what a success. I've got this new pizza flavor and I want to franchise it. It's no, you're so far over your head. You can't franchise an idea. You must have a prototype. And so my personal deal is I don't like startups. I like to see somebody that's been there, that has done it, that has achieved an, a success with an individual unit or two or three or four and has been around for five years. Not just hot market, not just a fad, but good market, bad market. They've come up. They've worked it out. They've got their own systems. They've got their own training program. They've been hiring and firing people. They start to get, this is what it's like to run a business with 5, 10, 50, or 100 people. You show me you can do that, and you've got a unique product or service. Yeah, you've got my interest. And then I can look at and evaluate and say, can we scale this? Franchising is totally about scalability. What do all great franchisors offer? And so all great franchisors offer five distinct competitive advantages to a person that wants to buy a franchise. Okay, and this is evolutionary. This will change over a period of 10, 20, 30 years in the lifetime of the franchisor. Number one, they have a unique product or service. McDonald's unique product or service was very inexpensive food. And it was a very simple menu it was French fries, it was a hamburger, a cheeseburger, it was a milkshake, a soft drink, and that was it. It was inexpensive. The locations were identical. They had golden arches, they had clean restrooms, and they had the same menu. And so we looked at that and I said, can we replicate that? Yeah, and you can replicate the training, the minutes or the seconds it takes to fry French fries, the portion size, the amount of salt, the number of pickles you put on a hamburger, it's all systemized. They also at that time said, we only do curb service. You pull up, there's no drive through window. You get out, you step up, you order, you get your bag with your food, and you get back in your car and you drive away, or you sit in your parking spot and you eat it. Ray McDonald would roll over in his grave if he ever saw that all of a sudden McDonald's evolved and came up with 50 items, which makes the business much more complex. And then they had children's meals. Children's meals are important because the little toy and the kids determine what the parents are going to take them to eat. And they don't determine fine dining. They determine quick service. McDonald's wanted no newspaper stands. You're not supposed to buy your food and sit on a picnic table and eat it. Get back in your car and leave us alone. They did not want a telephone booth because hamburger joints were where teenagers hung around, smoked cigarettes, called girlfriends and boyfriends, and made a nuisance of themselves trying to get dates. It is a family-friendly environment. So no phones, no playground, no, no picnic tables, none of this stuff. Over a period of time, it evolved. It went through a 60-year evolution to where all of a sudden they realized children drove business and Happy Meals was an important part of the menu. And so they started to evolve.
then they decided indoor seating was a good thing. And so now it's totally different than it was, but it evolved. The second thing all great franchisors do is they provide a brand. Well, the power of McDonald's advertising worldwide is phenomenal. They spend 10% of every dollar that comes in the cash register on advertising, regionally, locally, and nationally, and internationally. 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 McDonald's in the United States has billions of dollars and can run dozens of TV commercials every single day of the week. Each one of those commercials, an individual franchise couldn't pay for. They all get the benefit of tens of thousands of commercials driving business into the company. So the, the third thing is market share because people only drive so far to get a McDonald's. Uh, it might be two miles, it might be three miles, but you get out five, six miles, they'll go someplace closer. Uh, they're short on time at lunch and they're on their way to work. They're short on time going to work. And so having uh, a lot of market presence helps everybody. Then the fourth thing you get into that's most important, and that is a business in the box. You have training, you have systems, and you have technology. One hamburger joint can never have what McDonald's has worldwide. They have, they're scientific. They know they, they cook their French fries at X many degrees in the oil for X many seconds by location because the cooking time is different at sea level than it is at Denver at 5,200 feet. This is a total systemized training program from the ground up that when you open your door, you open a success. And the fifth thing, of course, is group purchasing. I like to give the example of group purchasing was I own a very incredible private golf course. There are two members, Gail and myself. Neither one of us golfs anymore. We used to like to, but physically we don't. But about five years ago, I went to my pro and I said, do you have any catalogs? I want to buy some new golf clubs wholesale. And he laughed at me and he said, Dave, our clubhouse is... We do charity tournaments. We have no members. We don't sell clubs. We sell hats and we sell polo shirts. We sell logos and uh, golf balls and gloves, not golf clubs. Go to Golfsmith. You can go to Golfsmith. There's three or four of them in Denver. They sell golf clubs so much cheaper than we can buy them wholesale because they're doing it in volume. Look at someplace like McDonald's. They buy their potato crop five years in advance from their farmers. They don't wait and buy when they harvest the potatoes. They buy the futures. They enter into a contract and say, we'll buy every potato you can produce with these standards. And they have very strict standards of what they'll take and what they won't. And we'll pay it for you. And it's a five-year contract. We renew it every year. We always want you to be our farmer. And... They will adjust for inflation and they adjust for costs so that the farmer is taken care of. And what, if you're a farmer, you want to sell your potatoes on the open market, or do you want to know for the next five years, this is my buyer, I'm getting a fair price. And so they can buy potatoes so much cheaper than one hamburger stand can go to the grocery store or to Cisco or US Foods and 
inspired by the bourgeois.